Good evening, friends. This is your host, Franz Weinschenk, here to welcome you to Valley Writers Read, where all the authors you hear hail from right here in the San Joaquin Valley. Tonight, we're treated to a story about Maddie, who unfortunately lost her husband, Harry, recently. Our author is Charlotte Abrams, who lives in Bakersfield, and the name of her story is Everybody's Got Troubles. Here she is, Charlotte Abrams, reading Everybody's Got Troubles. Everybody's got troubles. Maddie Pankow drank her coffee in solitude. The radio stayed mute, the TV off. It was too early for the phone to ring. The stillness in the house was a welcome relief from the crush of the last three months. She had been on high alert, stiff upper lip through Harry's illness, then pretended pleasure during the party that her children thought appropriate for her 65th birthday. She had met with her attorney who had seen to the paperwork and had written her thank-you notes after Harry's funeral and the thank-yous to the guests who had come to the party. Now there was silence and fatigue and a muddling in her head that caused her to take to her bed to nap in the middle of the afternoon when she couldn't muster a cogent thought. But Maddie had to think today. She had an appointment at 10.30, and she let the coffee grow cold as she pulled on a pair of black slacks and a burgundy turtleneck, brushed her teeth, and made a stab at makeup, blush, pencil, lipstick. She gathered the pile of papers from the kitchen table and put them in a large manila envelope. As she readied herself to leave, the phone rang. Annoyed with the interference, she thought not to answer it, but it could be her son Nathan, so she picked up the phone. Nady, I can't talk to you now. I'll call you later. Is this the Pankow residence? asked an unfamiliar voice. Yes. Mrs. Pankow, your husband ordered a special golf club for you. It's ready now. When would it be convenient for me to deliver it? A shiver went through her like the sharp end of an icicle. Who the hell do you think you are preying on widows like that? My husband did no such thing. My husband has been dead for three months and sick a lot longer than that. I haven't golfed in years. Don't you dare come here, or I'll call the police. The phone went dead. She had to steal herself for a minute. This was just the thing they talked about in the bereavement group, crooks who watched the obits and convinced the poor spouse that a gift had been ordered for them. She'd even seen it in a movie years ago, a kid with an angelic face knocking on doors with the same story. Mr. So-and-so ordered a Bible. She took a deep breath and turned on the house alarm before she closed the front door, locked it and walked the 20 feet to the sidewalk, turning once to check the front of the house and the side fences to make sure they were secured, things Harry reminded her to do. 
Now she had the burden of remembering, and it felt heavy on her shoulders, always worrying that she would slip up, leave a window open, or a business card dropped on the front step from a hopeful salesman, things a burglar would notice. The number 12 bus would be at the corner in three minutes. Maddie hadn't taken the bus in years, but the car seemed a burden, too. It was hard to focus on the traffic sometimes. Last week, a fender bender, and just yesterday, a hurried stop when the light turned red. Through her rearview mirror, she had seen the man in the car behind her throw his hands up in the air. What are you, crazy, he mouthed. The facilitator at the bereavement group warned her about that, too. You're not sleeping well. You've got all this stuff rattling in your head. You're thinking about maybe selling the house, or you're going to ask your son Johnny to move back home. Well, people, don't make any decisions for at least six months, and stay alert. A collective murmur from the group had confirmed Maddie's suspicions. Their heads were muddled, too. A gust of wind tousled her short gray hair. She smoothed it with her one free hand, her other holding the large envelope with the necessary papers for her appointment. She wondered how others had felt when Susan seemed hell-bent on reminding everyone that it was her mom's birthday. And as she had said so many times when the funeral arrangements had been completed and Harry was laid to rest, life goes on, Mom. Well, Harry's didn't, and Maddie's conscience still gnawed at her for giving in to the kids. The number 12 pulled up with a hiss of its brakes and a whining of the doors as they opened wide. She hiked herself up with her free hand and stood clueless in front of the coin box. How much? she asked the driver. Senior, he asked. I guess I am. Buck ten. Next time, get yourself a senior card. The driver pointed to a slot on top of the contraption. She slid the money in, feeling foolish for not researching the cost or the ways of bus riding. All the window seats were taken, so she found a seat next to a woman engrossed in a book who inched closer to the window. Maddie wondered if it was a polite gesture, giving her more room, or removing herself from contact. Well, it didn't matter. She wasn't inclined to rub shoulders with a stranger either. She lay the envelope in her lap and anchored it with her purse. "'It's half off if you get a monthly senior pass,' the woman said, turning from her book. "'Oh, I, I don't expect to be using the bus often. I had an auto accident recently, and my nerves are a bit rattled, so I'm not taking any chances for a while. "'That's too bad. And my husband died. "'Oh, my, were you hurt, too?' Oh, oh, no, he died first, then I... The woman closed her book and stood up as if to leave. Maddie moved her feet to the aisle. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bother you. It's my stop, lady. Oh, of course. Maddie moved to the window seat, noticing the amused looks of the couple across from her. She had the feeling that everyone on the bus was a regular who took the number 12 the same time every day, and she was an interloper a fish out of water. She pressed her nose to the window like a toddler who hides his face thinking nobody can see him. She could feel the presence of another human being in the seat she had vacated, but she wasn't going to turn to look or engage him or her in conversation, not after making a fool of herself, telling a perfect stranger that Harry had died. Catalpa, Adams, North Avenue would be next, then the park and finally Market Street.
She looked at the envelope in her lap. 3654 Market Street, Suite 202, then her watch. She had enough time. But when the bus reached North Avenue, it turned into the park instead of taking the road that skirted along it, the way she would have driven if she'd been in her car. She stood up, struggling with her package and purse, and with a look at the young man who was now in her way, stepped around him and rushed to the front of the bus. Driver, I need to get to Market Street. I thought I was on the right bus. You are, he said, intent on the traffic before him. But I've never gone this way. I'm a little confused. She was sure there were forty curious eyes on her taking in the drama. I'll call the stop, miss. Thank you, she murmured in a half-whisper. She turned to find the passengers immersed in iPods, newspapers, or staring vacantly out their windows. It seemed nobody had paid attention to her nervousness. Still, Maddie thought, she was going to stand right here. She was going to hang on to the strap and pretend she knew what she was doing. She was not going to tell them Harry died and that her head was muddled and had recently been assaulted by strange people calling her, trying to con her into a new golf club. She swayed with every turn. Her body jerked at each stop. Market Street! Carefully, with all the dignity that she could muster, she let go of the strap, grabbed the pole leading to the steps, and walked out into the fresh air. The revolving door deposited her into the lobby. She checked the directory to be sure she was in the right building, found the name Jameson, financial advisor, studied herself in the reflective glass on the elevator wall, and discovered that she was still intact. The foolishness on the bus had not turned her into a disaster. Her hair had stayed in place. The black slacks still kept their crease, and if she didn't mind saying so, she looked nicely made up. Mrs. Pankow, Miss Jameson will see you now. May I bring you a cup of coffee? No, thank you, Maddie replied. After the polite handshaking and settling in their chairs, Miss Jameson's behind her desk, Maddie in the chair opposite her, Miss Jameson, call me Clara, she offered, stretched out her hand to receive Maddie's papers. Clara spread the papers on the desk and studied them. Maddie studied Clara. Thin, pinched lips, tight jaw, not pretty. No ring on her finger. Her hair unattractively arranged, an irritated look to her eyes, as if she were concentrating on an itch she needed to scratch. Maddie surmised that Clara was around thirty, the same age as her daughter, but certainly not as pretty as her Susan. A flutter of pride welled up in her, thinking how lucky she was to have Susan. How Harry doted on her from the day she was born— and how he doted on Nady, too. Sometimes she wondered if they favored Harry over her, how she felt second fiddle to their intense give-and-take with each other, leaving her to clean up in the kitchen as they spoke of the events of the day. Clara arranged the papers in a neat pile and folded her hands in a teacherly manner. Well, Mrs. Panka, may I call you Maddie? Maddie smiled in assent. Truth was, she never liked being called by her first name when dealing with a business person, or a store clerk for that matter, especially the young ones, and especially when they called her Hun or Sweetie. It seems your attorney took care of everything. He transferred the stocks and the iris in your name, and the house, I see. Looks like you're in good shape. So what would you like from me? 
Maddie directed Clara's attention to Harry's insurance policy. It's a decent sum of money, she informed Clara. My husband left a smaller amount to the children. I'm undecided as to where to invest my share. What do you suggest? Clara settled back on her chair. There are a number of ways, she said, tapping her pencil on the desk. And then, as if she had been transported to an alien world, Clara rattled off in what seemed to Maddie an alien language, limited partnerships in peat bogs and windmills, losses to offset capital gains, projected returns, on and on until it coalesced into one monotonous drone. And the usual cost to you for handling your fund would be... The muddling in her head returned, threatening to become a headache. Thanks for your time, Clara, but I'll have to think about all this. I'll get back to you when I've had time to absorb it. Is there a fee for today's consultation? It would be waived if you sign on with me, said Clara. They shook hands. Maddie left sure that Clara knew she would not be back. Nonsense, all nonsense, Maddie thought as she exited the building. I've wasted my time and my money. I don't need an advisor. But when her son had taken the position, he knew what was best for her. Maddie had grown stubborn, feeling her power had been usurped. Nadie was right all along, and she would call him to apologize as soon as she got home. She hailed a cab, not wanting to chance another comedy routine with a perfect stranger. A yellow pulled up. 4957 Ashley Road Driver. Don't go through the park. It's a longer ride. Okay, lady. He turned the meter on, obeying her instructions. She pulled the aspirin bottle out of her purse and popped two tablets in her mouth, swallowing them whole. Harry could do that, never tasting the bitterness. Maddie struggled with the residue, washing her tongue over her lips. Bad day, miss? What? I see you take pills. Bad day? No? I have a headache. Too bad. Troubles? Yes? Troubles, yes. It had been a long time since she took cabs. She remembered how chatty they could be, talking about nothing in particular, just rambling on. She supposed to take away the boredom. This one had an accent, unfamiliar to her. Where are you from? New York. She giggled. I mean, what country? Moldova. You know where? He asked, looking in his rearview mirror. She shook her head no. Near Romania, you know where? She imagined a map, trying to place the country. Eastern Europe, yes. She took on his truncated speech, leaving out the extra words. Right, he said. Not many people know. You smart, miss. Well, thank you, she said, feeling smart indeed. I hear three gears. Good country. I like very much. Miss my family. Lonely. Soon they come, my wife, my children. Save money, bring them here. You have family? My husband dead, three months. Oh, sorry. Children? Two. You drive cab in Moldova? No, I was engineer. Can't work this country. I go night school. I learn. He explained the difficulty in starting over again, but he was determined to make it. All this in his fractured English, but she understood enough and nodded her head every so often to let him know she was listening. From her seat, she could see only the back of his head and the angular shape of his face in the rearview mirror. 
He had curly dark hair that grew low on his forehead. His eyes were shielded by sunglasses. She'd been lost in the conversation, unaware that he had turned on to Ashley, second house driver. He pulled up the driveway and opened her door, offering his hand. Careful, miss. Maddie took it, not wanting to seem ungracious. He waited respectfully while she put the dollars in his hand. Keep the change, she said. I hope soon your family will come. He smiled. Thank you. I get on with my life when they come. He hesitated. Maybe I say it wrong. No, you say it right. Everybody got troubles, yes. Everybody got troubles, yes, she responded. I hope soon better for you. He got back into the cab and drove away. The answering machine blinked with three messages. She put the envelope on the kitchen table and pushed message one. Hi, Maddie. Joni. Playing cards Saturday night. Are you ready to come back? We all miss you. Message two. Maddie. Joe Palmer here. It was nice seeing you at your birthday party. Wonder if you'd like to have a coffee with me one day. Talk over old times. No hurry. Give me a call. Message three. Hi, Mom. Nady, where have you been? She raced number one. No, she was not ready. She would feel like a fifth wheel, the only single there. Not now. Maybe later. She erased number two. Joe Palmer broke up with his latest, she guessed. Didn't take him long, did it? I suppose I should be flattered, she thought, but I'm not. Not now. Not ever. She dialed Nady's number. He answered it with a quick, Hello, Mom, knowing it was her. He had caller ID and extra expense as far as she was concerned, but he could afford it, he had told her. Where have you been, he asked, a worried tone to his voice. Maddie didn't know where to begin. So she began at the beginning, remembering the scam phone call and related it to Nathan word for word. That's a good reason for caller ID, Mom. It was awful, Nadie. I should have let him come with the golf club so I could hit him over the head with it. Mom, get the caller ID. You don't need to be hustled like that again, and I'd be careful with letters from people you've never heard of. I took the bus, Nady. Why didn't you take the car? She was sorry she mentioned that. She hadn't told him or Susan about the car accident. I just felt like it, Nady. It wasn't a bad ride. I went to see that financial advisor I told you about. Maddie went into the details of the meeting and what a waste of time it was and how she should have trusted his judgment. She wasn't going to mention her confusion on the bus or her ridiculous behavior. She was sure he'd tell Susan, and they would have a conference on their mother's mental state. So I'm apologizing, Nady, for being so stubborn. It's okay, Mom. Nady, have you asked the gardener to trim the bushes in the back? No. Doesn't he usually do it? He just mows and blows, but lately I've noticed some of the bushes have been trimmed. Not all of them. Last week, one. Then I noticed another just the other day. The abelia in the corner. I thought you may have mentioned it to the gardener. He probably noticed that it hadn't been done in a while, not since Dad being sick, Nady said. I suggest you pay him extra for his troubles. Maybe you're right. Don't forget tomorrow. I'm making beef stew. Your favorite. The usual time. Gotta go, Mom. Maddie changed into her sweats and put on her Reeboks. 
She went through the routine for the second time that day of setting the alarm, making sure everything was secure, and walked the two blocks to the supermarket. It was quiet on the street except for a car or two and a couple of teenage boys on their skateboards. She didn't know anyone who lived on Ashley Road anymore. The friends she and Harry had made, had potlucked with, had all moved away. Their kids in college or gone to start their own families. The Singers and the Johnsons had moved to fancy-gated retirement communities. Younger people had moved into the neighborhood who pulled out of their garages in the morning and entered them at night with hardly a hello to her. Once in a while, a wave of their hands, and she would wave back, not knowing their names. Old Mr. Grundy, who must be close to 90, she figured, was the only one left of the neighbors she had known, and he was never the sort of person who would join in the potlucks or stop to chat. Widowed for most of his residency on Ashley Road, with no children, he kept to himself. But he was always courteous, tipping his hat or bending over in a slight bow when they met at the corner mailbox or at the market. She noticed him sitting on his front porch as she walked past his home, eased to a slow walk and waved. He nodded his head and lifted his hand in greeting. How he had managed all those years alone was a mystery to her. He'd be better off in a retirement home, she thought. At the supermarket, she picked up carrots, celery, potatoes, a package of stew beef, and a gooey chocolate cream pie, Nady's favorite, and walked home at a brisk pace, pleased that her feet could still do the job. She wondered when that wouldn't be so, when her knees would lock up and she would have to consider one of those places where she would be better off. The answering machine blinked with more messages. Message one. Joe Palmer calling again. How about... She erased it. Message two. Joni here. Are you coming? She dialed Joan, got her answering machine. Hi, Joni. Sorry I didn't call back sooner. Too bad. I can't make it. Nathan and his wife are coming for dinner Saturday, but thanks for thinking of me. I promise I'll make it next time. Well, all right, she lied. Nady was coming tomorrow, Friday, but telling Joan about her uneasiness would only bring discussion, and she was not ready to explain her fifth-wheel status. And another thing that bothered her was that chance meeting she had with Joan's husband at the drugstore, who, in his effort to console her, assured her that she'd have no trouble finding another husband. Is that what he and the other husbands think? Would her life have no meaning until another Prince Charming came along? The envelope with her important papers still lay on the kitchen table. But she was in no mood to go over them now, or to revisit the fiasco of her meeting with Miss Call Me Clara. She pulled the box of Kashi Goline from the pantry, put some into a bowl, sliced a fresh mango, poured milk over both, and ate what should have been her breakfast. It was her new eating habit now, eating what she wanted and when she wanted it. She finished it up with a glass of wine and one half of a Hershey bar, pulled off her rebox and settled into the sofa with this morning's crossword puzzle and turned on the TV. Jay Leno shouted from the screen, startling her, Maddie, wake up and put that pen down. You've been asleep for hours. She opened her eyes. Her fingers were locked around the pen. The puzzle scrunched in her lap. Jay Leno said good night with nary an apology for being so harsh with her. She struggled to keep awake long enough to get to her bed, promising herself she'd brush her teeth twice as long in the morning 
to make up for tonight, and fell into a dreamless sleep. Or so she thought. As she cut the onions in quarters and sliced the carrots and celery on the bias the next morning, she remembered the conversation she had with the cab driver yesterday. How lonely it must be for him to be in a strange country, away from his loved ones. Scenes of their meeting played before her, and she realized that she had dreamed about him. What is it those books say about dreams? Everyone in your dream is really you? Hmm, she wondered, then turned the thought away and busied herself with the stew. It was 4.30, time to put the stew on the tiniest of simmer. She quartered the tomatoes for the salad, uncorked a bottle of Merlot so it would breathe, and finished dressing the table when the phone rang. Joe Palmer, probably, she smiled. No, she won't answer it. Mom, it's Nady. Answer. Nady, where are you? I'm home. I can't make it, Mom. Rena's down with the flu. She's got a temp of 102. I can't leave her. Tell Susan I'm sorry. Susan and the kids are away for the weekend, Nady. I thought you knew. She heard a sigh on the other end. It's okay, Nady. I understand. Next time, huh? Tell Rena to drink plenty of fluids. I'll call you tomorrow, Mom. Nady hung up. Maddie sat in the kitchen chair and put her muddled head in her hands. Tired, disappointed, ready to weep. No, I will not cry. This is not a catastrophe. I can eat my portion and freeze the rest. But potatoes don't freeze well, do they? And carrots turn to mush, don't they? I could call Joe Palmer, couldn't I? She laughed. She reached for the phone book, looked up the number, and dialed. Yellow cab. Hello, yellow cab. I live on Ashley Road. Yesterday, I took a cab from Market Street. What was the item you left in the cab, ma'am? I didn't leave anything. I was wondering if I could speak with the driver. I don't know his name, but he's from Romania, I think. No, Moldova. Was there a problem with the driver, ma'am? Oh, no, no problem. I would like to speak with him, though. Did you want to book another trip with this driver, ma'am? No, I just wanted to ask him if... Hello? Hello? Hello, ma'am. This is the supervisor. Do you have a complaint about one of our drivers? No, no, no complaints. She made a mess of this and would probably get the poor man fired. The reason I'm calling is to let you know that I found your driver most courteous and attentive to details. I hope you will relay my appreciation to him, and I will most certainly use his, um, your service again. She hung up. The phone rang again. She let it ring. Message one. Joe Palmer here. Erased. Message two. Joni here. Erased. She turned the gas off under the stew and ladled a portion of it into a bowl, then changed her mind and returned the beef to the pot, leaving only the carrots and potatoes. Carrots, potatoes, and Merlot. Maybe a slice of the pie, she decided. But she had no appetite now, and swirled her fork aimlessly in the bowl. She drank the wine. She thumbed through today's papers, paused at the travel section, she could easily take a portion of that insurance money and go off on a first-class cruise, maybe to the Galapagos or some other strange island. She could travel incognito, 
under an assumed name, wear dark glasses as she strolled the deck, and at night dance with one of the crew, no, make that an officer, who was assigned to keep the middle-aged lady happy. She would be alone, completely alone, the topic of whispered conversation at the cocktail bar. Who is that mysterious lady? She could debark at the port in Moldova, if there is a port, and stroll the boulevard, if there is a boulevard, and look for his family and tell them how lonely he is. Soon, Mrs. Wife and family, he will come for you. No radio, no TV, no more phone calls. Just the muddling in her head filled the air around her. She drank the wine slowly, tuned into the solitude, thinking it wasn't so terrible to eat, well, try to eat, a nice home-cooked meal by herself. Something clicked in the kitchen. Had she left the timer on? No, everything was off. She went back to the wine. Click, click, click. Must be the smoke alarm, she thought. Maybe the batteries are running low. She remembered when Harry thought there was a cricket in the house until he found the offending alarm. What a relief that was. Harry didn't like killing bugs, and neither did she. Click, click. She moved from room to room, staring at the ceilings. The further away she moved from the kitchen, the softer the clicking became until the sound disappeared completely when she reached the back bedroom. She made her way down the hall, stopping to take a broom from the utility closet. She would brush the ugly bug out the back door, but first she had to find it. Click, click. She followed the sound back to the kitchen. She opened the door. Click, click. Mr. Grundy stood in front of the hawthorn bush, a pair of shears in his hand. Click, click. Well, this will not do, Mattie thought. I never gave him permission. Mr. Grundy, she shouted. Grundy kept on clicking, oblivious to her shouts. Mr. Grundy! Grundy finally dropped the shears. He bent over to retrieve his cane and turned to her. The sky had turned to dusk, leaving Grundy in a pool of shade, looking frail in his worn shirt, and the jeans that seemed two sizes too big. Mr. Grundy, she said softly, I have a warm pot of stew on the stove. Would you do me the honor of having dinner with me tonight? He nodded slightly and walked across the lawn to her, the cane in his right hand for support. As he reached the porch steps, Mattie stretched out her hand. Let me help you, she offered. It's Bernard, isn't it? Call me Mattie. It's so important to make someone happy. Make just one someone happy. Make just one heart-to-heart you You sing to one Smile that cheers you One face that lights when it nears you One girl you're You're everything to fame If you win it Comes and goes in a minute Where's the real stuff in life? That was Charlotte Abrams reading her story, Everybody's Got Troubles. And though her story is fiction, it's a tale often duplicated among our own friends and families. 
Here is Maddie, who recently lost her husband and is at this point understandably very vulnerable. And now, on top of everything else, she is confronted with scam artists, with all the technical details of how to make the best use of her money, with transportation issues, with rather fragile son and daughter relationships, with all the phone calls she gets, and most important of all, with all her loneliness. It's 90-year-old Mr. Grundy who temporarily, at least, takes over where Harry left off, pruning the shrubbery around her house. He sort of breaks the ice, and we're relieved when Maddie finally breaks down and invites him in to share a warm pot of stew with her. Folks, we've had Charlotte on before. She resides in Bakersfield, has had two stories published in the Los Angeles Times. She's also the author of a book entitled The Silence, which is a memoir of growing up with deaf parents. Currently, she's working on a book for children. Thank you, Charlotte, for a really poignant story. We hope you're busy writing yet another one for us for next year. And so we come to the close of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to listen to tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read story again, just go online at kvpr.org and link up with archived audio. Next week, I'll be reading a story of mine. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Writers Read.